If you're new to youth ministry and love our free resources like our articles and podcasts, it may be time to try out our gospel-centered inductive Bible study curriculum for teenagers. If you don't know how to start, tired of creating your own curriculum, or you're just curious about what other youth ministers are finding helpful, we have developed a whole community and platform of resources just for you. Rooted Reservoir has all you need to lead your students through inductive Bible study with over 24 books of the Bible already available and more added each year. Our newest curriculum plans are a 31-week study on Luke and Acts and a 26-lesson study on First and Second Kings. Try it for free and join the several thousands of youth pastors who have downloaded our free Philippians curriculum, or go ahead and sign up for your yearly membership to access a full year of curriculum, four different youth ministry training courses, and over 200 teaching illustrations to help you as you plan each week. Visit RootedMinistry.com and head to the curriculum page for more information. RootedMinistry.com You are listening to a talk recorded at the 2023 Rooted Ministry Conference in Franklin, Tennessee. While you listen, why not visit rootedministry.com conference to learn about the 2024 Rooted Conference in Dallas, Texas. Uh, honored to be here. Um, I don't know if I have any real expertise on this topic, uh, actually. Um, I, I think as I was thinking about this, I was like, man, how do you prepare your students for college and uh, my first thought was, well, it depends on which students we're talking about and which college. Um, you know, I work at a place called Belmont University. I've done that for 28 years. And even that school has changed significantly since I began. When I began there 28 years ago, uh, it was a school about half the size it is now. Um, the only students that came from out of the state of Tennessee were there to do music. And the rest of the school was filled up with Tennessee Baptist kids. Um, it's not that way anymore. Um, it's double the size. Um, they've got all kinds of programs that people uh, come for. And, um, it, it, you know, it's just, a, it's just a much different place. But it's also totally different than, like, a state university. Um, so I have three kids. Like she said, one of them, Cooper, is actually out of college. He went to Covenant College. My second one is at Samford down in Birmingham. And then my daughter is at USF in Tampa. So they've had, you know, quite different experiences and even their own faith journeys are, are pretty different. Um, but I, I, I have some thoughts that I've jotted down. I actually surveyed uh, some other RUF campus ministers as well to get their thoughts on this sort of thing. And I guess, you know, the first thing I would say is depends on which students, depends on which university. And, and then the second, particularly for those of you that have been doing this thing with uh, youth ministry for a long time, is don't assume things are the same. You know, I think one of the challenges in, in doing this, sometimes, you know, people do youth ministry and they kind of sort of have maybe a five or six year gap between them and their students and they kind of track. So they go from youth ministry to college to singles to maybe pastoring a church, right? And there's like kind of a consistent age and other people stay with ministering to the same group of students, same demographic, and they keep having to kind of shift how they do things. That was me, right? I started out you know, in my early 20s, teaching a college Sunday school class here at Christ Community while playing in a rock band, typical path, uh, then went to seminary, came back here, started RUF, and was the college pastor here at the same time for eight years, and then I've continued to do college ministries, from being a single guy to being married to married with little kids, now we're empty nesters, and all those stages change, but what I was particularly struck uh, when my first, uh, my oldest went to college, and I started going and doing 
college tours, college visits, even when we visited Belmont, the university where I've worked for 28 years, and I was like, how come I've never taken the college tour that they offer? And now I like get to hear how the university is selling themselves to students, which gives me a lot of insight into why they're all disappointed <laughs> and why it's not what they thought it was going to be. Um, and and I, I think what my point of here is, if you think you understand youth from two years ago, you don't understand youth. Like one of the things I think, particularly if you've been doing this a while, is to feel like, okay, yeah, I read some books on this, I talked to these students, but you know, now I've got little kids and I don't have nearly as much time, I can kind of coast on what I used to understand, and it just doesn't work that way. Things are just so different, even from year to year, particularly post-pandemic. Um, you know, so again, it depends on which students... But in particular, I want to encourage you, like you have got to regularly be doing demographic work, trying to understand not just the Bible, but who your students are. And to that end, I would say in RUF, we talk a lot about three avenues of ministry. And I think that's true across the board. There are three avenues of ministry. There are one-on-one -on -one meetings, there are small groups, and there is kind of large group dynamic. And each of them have pros and cons, right? The large group dynamic, a student can sit in the back of the room and sort of kind of listen in and know that nobody's going to call on them to lead in prayer or nobody's going to ask them questions, right? And then small groups have a different dynamic where they can kind of wrestle with scripture together. They can offer up prayer requests, but depending on the size and the dynamic, they may not be called on. But one-on-one -on -one meetings is where you get to personally apply things and really hear their story and get to build relationships. And uh, I'm convinced that students need all three of those. Right? Each of them have different uh, pros and cons and different things they're particularly good at. Um, and I find some students have never met one-on-one -on -one with a pastor kind of person to talk about their spiritual lives. And I, I remember years ago reading that book, Hurt. And I remember at the time I was reading it, I realized that the, the students that he was talking about were my freshmen when I was reading the book. And I was like, yeah, almost I can almost tell which ones had had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with an adult in high school because they're the ones that aren't weirded out by meeting with me for coffee. But a lot of the other ones, they're like, whoa, what? They just never would think about that. So one of my encouragements is use all three avenues and, and help your students be prepared to talk to an adult about their lives. I, I think it was in that book, Hurt, that he basically concludes at the end. It's a pretty distressing book if you you've never read it. And, and again, old-fashioned now, I suppose, in some ways. But one of the things he says is just try to get as many adults to have relationships with your kids as possible. And I still think that's really good advice. The more adults that they can actually feel like they could talk to about things, about real things, um, and I, you know, I think it's really important. And I think it begins in middle school and high school, right? So I know we do like large group celebration kind of meetings, and then we do discipleship groups, a lot of youth ministries have that model, but I think the one-on-one -on -one meetings are really important too, and it sets your students up to be, uh, to think that that's not a weird thing, to, because they, they tend to just talk to their peers about everything. It's amazing how, how often I've been like, why wouldn't you involve an adult in this? Like literally, like, you know, my students will take one of their friends to the hospital to check them into the psych, Vanderbilt psych, and I hear about it like a week later. And like, this is a student who's on my leadership team, and they don't think to even talk to me about it. And I've got worse stories than that, where like, why didn't you 
actually tell an adult what's going on. They just don't think about that sometimes. They just think that, you know, they kind of know what to do and they're going to help each other. They think of their, their friends as their family. Um, and, and I think the more we can help them normalize involving adults in their world really helps them in the future. Um, the other thing I, I would say, you know, along this line is in RUF, we talk about the importance of a philosophy of ministry. And I suspect there's a lot of resonance in the kinds of things you talk about in Rooted. At least that's been my experience um, being among rooted people over the years. Um, we talk about the importance of a philosophy of ministry because if you don't have a philosophy of ministry where you're really asking yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? You tend to depend on your personality or what worked last year. And so along these lines of things are not the same, you can't just do what worked last year. You, you really do have to be thinking one of the things... Um, this fall that uh, Belmont, we go through a training from their like student services people so that we can have access to students that's part of the deal in uh, you know, a private university. And one of the things they really encouraged us with this year was to s- try to set up some smaller communities that can be a point of entry for our students. And, and that made a lot of sense to me because I, I remember we've got one student, she's a senior now, but I remember like seeing her when she was a freshman, you know, we meet in this building that's just at the edge of campus and students kind of gather outside mingling before we all go in. Tim knows, he's been there. And I literally saw her kind of come around the corner of the building. She was still kind of in the shadows, out of the street lights. And I saw her just kind of have to steady herself and like just like take a deep breath before she could even walk into the group of students. Like it was everything she could do just to walk into a group of 100 students mingling around. And, and, and more and more like the, the student affairs people are saying, you need to find and create smaller groups for people to begin to enter in rather than thinking they're all going to come to a large group, particularly after the pandemic. A lot of them, the social anxiety is really big. And, and so that's what I'm thinking. Even like the idea that everybody wants to come to a big gathering of a couple hundred people, some people are never going to come to that. And, and when I talk about those three avenues, I think one of the dynamics I see is that students feel like they know what they need and they're going to curate their own experience. Um, they'll like go here. I see, I mean, adults in Nashville do that. They're like, I go to this church once a month because I like the worship and then I need to be fed. So I go to this church and I go to this church for this. And adults do that. So why wouldn't their kids, you know, they do the same kind of thing. They're like, I really like, you know, this small group. I only need a small group. And I'm like, you probably need more than a small group, but that's kind of what they think they need. So we'll have all these students that go to freshman small group, but they don't ever come to anything else we do. Or some students that will go to large group, but they don't have any kind of one-on-one relationship with anybody there. They talk about their spiritual life. Um, I think you just, again, part of understanding who your students are now. Don't assume that sort of the older model of, you know, everything's about the big group and that's the funnel. And then we try to disciple kids from there. Not necessarily. Um, you know, every one of those avenues can be an entry point uh, for kids. And some of them may just stay in one of those avenues. You know, I'm always fighting to my leaders to understand that RUF is not just large group. You know, that our ministry are all three of those avenues. And for some students, they may only really uh, come to one of those. Um, second thing I would say is start early. Um, so we're talking, I'm talking to youth ministry staff, Right. Uh, that means start talking to your students about college and how different it's going to be 
uh, and what their priorities need to be, not just like the summer before they go off to college. Um, and I also mean this in the sense of start making connections, if you possibly can, with college ministry uh, staff where they're going. Uh, I know in RUF, a lot of times, well, I just know the Dynamics Youth Ministry because the, the difficult thing about being on staff here at this church as the college pastor while also doing RUF is like in RUF, the summer, like things kind of pull back. But of course, when you do college ministry at a church, that's when everything ramps up, right? So it was always like, as soon as one thing's ramping down, then all of a sudden all the students have come back from college and you've got to do like this summer program. And so if you don't, I think if you don't connect your, to, with these college ministry people like RUF or crew or university, whoever it is that you maybe think it'd be a good place for your students to try to plug in. If you don't do that in May, before your summer starts, you probably are going to wait until August. And then that's really late for us to be trying to reach out to students. Because for instance, at Belmont, they're all registering for classes in the middle of the summer, right? And so if, they, if I don't actually begin to talk to them or reach out to them in August, I've kind of missed the opportunity to even help them know what gaps to leave in their schedule if they really want to be involved in RUF, as far as their class schedule, as far as their, you know, just how they're going to kind of arrange their world. Uh, I love to meet with them and get to know them even in the summer, because once they get to campus, it's like chaos. You know, we talk about the Christian rush, and it's not as bad at Belmont as it is some of these big schools that have 60, 70 different ministries, right? And like everybody is trying to get freshmen, and it's just craziness. And you know, the students are overwhelmed and they generally don't respond. The more you can try to, to get names to people and contact info, um, I get, you know, a lot of uh, contact info from, from parents um, who always want to, like, be anonymous. Like, I want you to reach out to my student, but don't tell them I asked you to do that. <laughs> so we won't do that in RUF, but what I will do is I say, have the youth pastor contact me because your kid will expect that the youth pastor uh, puts them on my radar. So blame the youth pastor, you know, that, and I think I would make that offer to, to your parents, right? Talk to them, say, hey, I know you don't want your students to feel like, you know, you're like being overly involved, but they kind of expect it of me because that's my job, you know? So you send out that info and, and the contact info if it's all, I mean, ask your, your students, I think you would need to ask their permission, but um, I don't think it'll weird them out quite as much. Um, so start early and, you know, even start them thinking about how different it is. I find that's one of the challenges. A lot of great youth ministries, right, have like student leaders, you know, volunteer leaders, adults or, you know, upper older students that do discipleship groups and they'll like reach out to these kids like every week. Are you reading your Bible? Can I pray for you? That's not going to happen in college. And for a lot of them, they don't really know how to. Um, take responsibility for their own spiritual life. They, and I see that, particularly here in Nashville, with really great, strong churches and youth groups, the kids are kind of like floundering when they get to college. Now, part of it is if they've stayed in this town, then they're trying to kind of hold on to their high school friends, and they don't really make the transition to trying to find a new group of friends. They kind of feel like stuck in between. Uh, but I also think some of them are still haunted in some ways by what they had in, in, in a great youth ministry, but our goal should be kind of like parents to train them up in the way they should go, not necessarily make them dependent on us. Uh, and I think it's really incumbent on youth ministry folks to begin to get students to be prepared for, 
you're really going to have to be proactive. You're going to have to really seek out community, and it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel different. Um, it's like I tell all of our college students when we do, we do a summer RUF program, and there's a lot of cities that do that kind of thing um, so that I don't have to preach every week. Different people will preach. And I always tell my students, like, okay, you've been coming to RUF all year. You know everybody. As soon as you come to summer RUF, you're going to know, like, one-fifth of the people because there's some from Belmont, there's some from Vanderbilt, there's some that are students that came to do a summer internship in Nashville and they're looking to get involved. There's students that have come home for the summer from various different colleges. And you just have to know it's gonna feel different, you know, when you come this summer and you just have to embrace that. You know what I mean? It's not gonna be comfortable. And I think, again, that's just extra uh, important for you to help them know that in college. College is just gonna feel different and disorienting in so many ways. And while some of they're excited about some things, they really dread a lot of other things. A friend of mine that used to do middle school ministry, he always contended that middle school students and college students were very similar because they're both like going to a situation where like everything is getting turned upside down and they're kind of rethinking everything they thought. Whereas high school kids are just too cool. I, I don't really ever relate well with high school kids. They're just too cool. Um, but middle school and college students are both like in a place of kind of wide-eyed wonder and trying to figure out like what's going on. And uh, he, he said this, and I, I think this is true. Like they want to be noticed, but they don't want to stand out. Like they want somebody to notice them, but they definitely don't want to be like up front in like an awkward place. Again, it totally depends on the school. Like students at Vanderbilt want to like run the world. So they want to be up front. Like everybody would be on the leadership team if you gave them an opportunity. Um, and that's true of a lot of my Belmont students too, right? They're looking for a career in music. They're up front. They want every, all the eyes on them. But for a lot of students, they don't want that. And how can, you, how can we reach both introverts and extroverts in a way? It's, it's difficult. Um, anyway, that took me a little offside. I, I think this, I, I think about this question in one of the, the kind of DNA aspects of RUF, we're always wanting students to be theologically reflective about life. So Steve Garber's question that you probably are aware of, like, why are you going to college anyway? What is college for? I wonder how many of our students have actually thought about that, or if it's just the thing they're supposed to do. Um, do they have a sense of telos, of like, why are they doing this? Steve Garber likes to ask the question, is your education just a passport to a life of privilege? Or does it actually implicate you in, in the world's problems and help you even find your place in serving God and serving uh, the world, loving God and loving your neighbor? I, I wonder, you know, do we ask high school students when they're even thinking about college? When I meet with students who are visiting uh, Belmont and they always want to meet with me, which is great, but I, sometimes I find that they've never really thought about that. Like, they've thought about what they want from a college, but they haven't thought very much about why they want to be at a college in the first place. And uh, that, for some of them, can lead to a real kind of crisis of faith in college if they've never given some thought about it. And I would so much rather they thought about that while they still have all of their trusted friends and family and youth pastor people. I think about that sometimes. Like, what are the things that are going to be really hard for them in college that I wish they could talk with somebody about while they still had safe people around. Um, and, and I'm assuming you have a relationship, at least some relationship to them while you can maybe talk to them. So the more you can talk to them about how things are gonna be difficult and different and help them be prepared for that, uh, I think is, is really, really helpful. Um, 
John Stone, who used to do RUF for years and years, maybe some of you know him, he's kind of a legendary figure in many ways. Um, he shared, this, this was advice for parents, so not for youth pastors, but I think it's interesting. He said his number one piece of advice was send your kids away to a sleepaway camp for at least two weeks if you possibly can afford it. And I think about my own experience. After my junior year in high school, I went to a seven-week program at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, uh, which in those days, that area of Boston was rough. Everybody I know got mugged at some point, including me. Um, the back bay up there is very nice now. It was very sketch back then. But that helped me so much in knowing that when I went to college, I needed to be much more proactive and looking for a faith community, looking for a church, because I didn't really do that in those seven weeks, and then I came back home. I guess the point I'm making is, if they can begin to experience something like that, and then come back to their loving Christian community and process it, I think that can really help them be better prepared for going off to college. And I don't know what the parallel uh, would be, you know, in high school. Our kids, I think both of my boys at least did uh, a summer at Alpine, um, which I think was good for them, but I, I don't know what that looks like with your demographic. Um, but why are they going to college? Why are they going to college? And then... Um, I don't know exactly how to, how to describe this. I, I, I find a lot of students, especially if they went to Christian schools, um, most, most of them have like at least a Reformed influence. I find many of them have, have been discipled in what I call the Reformed fundamentalist overreach. And what I mean by that is a, a, an unfortunate lack of understanding of common grace and general revelation, a sense that Reformed people have got everything figured out, and if they hear some other idea or begin to realize something they were told that's usually about some like, you know, something outside of theology, and they're like, wait, you know, my Christian biblical world life view class told me this, and now I find that that's not true. What else did they tell me that's not true? I remember, you know, a girl years ago went to a Christian high school here in Nashville and whether she was told this explicitly or not, she definitely picked up the idea that Buddhists were bad people. And so what do you think happened when she went to Boston University and had a Buddhist for a roommate who was way nicer than all the Christian students she met? Um, well, her faith began to collapse like a house of cards. Now, you can argue, you know, was she a true believer? I don't know. But that was certainly a factor. And, and, and I find, particularly as the culture and the church culture gets more polarized, I find just a real disturbing lack of understanding general revelation and common grace. You know, it's John Calvin that said, it was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to deny truth wherever it's found. And he meant that, he was talking about Plato and Aristotle. And I just find a lot of Reformed people are a lot less Reformed than they used to be. They're more fundamentalist. And the difference for me is fundamentalists think the only source of truth and faith and practice uh, that's a phrase from the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? The scripture is the only rule for faith and practice. It's not the only source for what we're to believe and uh, how we're to live. But there's, like, I find a lot of people have made that kind of switch. And the other kind of corollary is distinguishing or lack of being able to distinguish between primary and secondary doctrines. So we want our students to understand good theology, but we also need them to understand that some things are more important than other things. And for instance, there are secondary issues that I think a lot of times, you know, even my students that really know a lot of theology, they don't know how to, 
how to parse the difference. And so like everything, even secondary doctrines, become a litmus test on whether you believe the Bible. So it's like, you disagree with me about baptism? Well, you don't really believe the Bible, right? And then and, and they, they end up like just having this real kind of critical spirit and they don't know how to deal with nuance. You know, polemics, right? Defending the faith against believers is going to be a big deal for your students. And particularly if they go somewhere where there's not a lot of Christians, like when I went to Boston, um, man, I was just happy to find Christians. I tell people, if you went to the cafeteria on Sunday morning at Berkeley College of Music and somebody was dressed up to go to church, you knew they were an actual Christian. When I got to Belmont, students would literally dress up so you thought they were going to church in the cafeteria Sunday morning, and then they'd go back home, right? And the girls' softball team had an apartment where they could have their drinking parties so they didn't spoil their witness. And I was like, what is this weird world, right? So I think more and more, like, if I was somebody who was looking for somebody that lined up on everything I believed when I was in Boston, I would have had absolutely no Christian friends, right? And so some people, again, if they're coming from the South, they can like, I mean, you can pick up PCA Church, not just because you like the doctrine, but because you like which songs they sing, which preacher they, pre- you know, like you can just have so much specifics and again, curate your own experience. And then you go off to college and you're like over picky. It, uh, one of the things Belmont said, they're finding more and more students still streaming their church service from back home. And, and I think some of it's because they don't know how to sort of exist in a space where everything doesn't feel safe to them. And, and I find this a lot. So again, Belmont is a nominally Christian school. And, you know, liberalism in the theology department is just, it's, it's really, you know, shoved down their throat. And I find some students buy it hook, line, and sinker. Um, they feel like they've been lied to their whole life, and now finally somebody's telling me things that I need to hear. And other students are like, I can't, I can't listen to this professor. I can't hear anything they have to say. And the students don't know how to, how to deal with nuance and how to kind of say, well, there might be some truth to this, but, you know, I don't have to throw out everything that I've ever heard. And that kind of get, is, is what I'm trying to get at this next thing. How well have we set them up for encountering different ideas? Because they are going to hear different ideas, not just from professors, but from the other Christians they meet. Right? I talk to students all the time about charismatic gifts and about baptism. And those conversations are not coming from experiences they're having with their professors, but from other Christians. They've never met people that do some of these things because so many of them are just siloed in these kind of not just Christian community, but very specific Christian community that's very narrow. And now for the first time, they're meeting Christians who are genuine Christians who have some really different beliefs and they don't quite know how to, how to navigate that. Um, they, I, I think, you know, most of the students I get from Christian high schools know more about Mormonism than they do about liberalism. And liberalism is what they really need to know about. Um, and I find, like, my students are so naive. They're like, well, my, my professor is a Baptist pastor. I was like, okay, <laughs> there are some Baptist pastors in this town that don't believe anything of the historic Christian faith. And, and the students are, again, they're, I think they're just... Uh, you know, uh, Mako Fujimura recently at the Liturgy Collective said, our brains are just set in a way that anything we look at, we're instantly doing a calculus on whether it's safe or not. He's like, you know, you sat in that chair, you probably didn't pay attention to the color. Now, when I say this, you're all going to look at it. But every one of you, before you sat on it, your brain did a calculus on whether it could hold you or not. 
right? He said it takes at least 10 or 15 minutes standing in front of one of my paintings before your brain slows down, you can actually see what's there. Um, and, and I think this is true about ideas. They're like instantly, like, is this safe or not? Are they with us or not? Uh, I hope you know loyalty is a false virtue. Depends on if it's true and something worth being loyal to. But I think in our polarized culture, more and more people see loyalty as the only real virtue. And um, it's not very helpful in navigating the real world. Um, so do they know how to interact with this stuff? I really think students need to understand you know, theological liberalism, higher criticism, some of those things before they encounter, even if it's just a world civ, like world history class, but particularly if they're going to take any Bible classes. And um, to that end, you know, Michael Kruger's book, Surviving, uh, um, what is it, Surviving Religion 101, I think is a really, really helpful book. It kind of at least introduces a lot of the things that they're going to hear that they may have never heard about. Um, finding good friends. Probably the most, you know, the, the Harvard study where they've been looking at, you know, people for like 80 years and kind of how they, how they function and survive. Um, number one thing was good friendships, forgiving resilience for life. And yet students don't really know how to make friends. Um, the student affairs people at Belmont, like, like how often do you role play with students even like how to have a conversation when you meet somebody new. And he'll do this, like with freshmen that come into his office struggling to make friends, and he'll say, well, well tell me, you know, let's do a role play, like you're meeting me for the first time. Like, what are, the, what are the questions that you ask? How do you introduce yourself? And then he'll give them feedback. Yeah, that's maybe not so helpful. Um, like, literally, it seems like that basic, but it's true. Like, colleges spend tons of money. Like, the amount of people in student affairs now compared to when I started 28 years ago, to help students deal with conflict with roommates is extraordinary. They use the same kind of software that like all the dating apps use to try to match roommates because one of the biggest kind of losses of income for colleges are students that leave because of roommate conflicts. And the schools are trying to do everything they can for retention. And the main thing is helping students figure out how to resolve conflict. And most of them have no idea how to do it. Right? They've never had to, like, exist for very long in an uncomfortable situation. Because usually their parents or somebody would rescue them from that. Uh, and so they don't know how to do this stuff. And so I just wonder if in your youth ministry, if that's something you actually teach people. Here's how you resolve Conflict. It's hard because they don't want to talk to you about it. And, and half the time, by the time you hear about it, they've already left and went somewhere else. But man, if you could try to help people understand how to resolve conflict, particularly in a way where their identity in Christ actually enters into how they do the conflict, I think that would be so helpful. So helpful. Um, along these lines, you know, one of the things they recently said at this Belmont training we did was students crave connection, but they don't have the skills to know how to do it. And you see that with ghosting, right? Um, they're like, students today will sign up for leadership team and then they just bail. And you never know why. Like, what is going on? Uh, they, they had this uh, survey. 75% um, of college students today think ghosting is appropriate in certain situations. It's talking about when you text them, right? Because that's the only, they don't want to talk on the phone. You know that. Right, and I'm sure the same with the kids you work with. 64%, um, the reason they ghost, they're not interested in continuing the relationship. 
So they don't say it. They just don't reply. And of course, you're always trying to figure out what's going on. You know, that's one of the, the weird things about doing RUF at a small school is like students that like ghost us, I'll run into them on campus. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're at UT where, you know, they may never see like another person the rest of their four years. Like I'm going to see them and it's going to be weird. Um, so 64% not interested in continuing the relationship. 56% they're avoiding confrontation. Um, a mentor of mine used to say conflict is the path to intimacy. I remember Tim Keller said, you know, uh, once in, oh, I think it's on his marriage uh, tapes that, you know, maybe you've heard. If you haven't, you should. Um, he used to say, I pray that you marry somebody who tells you no, or you'll never know who they actually are. You know, I think there's something about that. Um, I had two students once that told me that they wanted to get married. And I said, why? And they said, well, because we just get along so well. I said, do you have a better reason? <laughs> and they were like, what? How could there be a better reason? Um, well, hope you know that there's a lot better reasons. Um, but, you know, that's so 56 goes because they're avoiding confrontation. The next one, though, 44% because they're stressed or overwhelmed by expectations. They just don't know what to do. So they just kind of panic and check out. And again, like the problem is you don't know what's going on. But all of those things are, are probably going on. Um, 41% not a strong enough connection, 39% offended by something, 29% struggling with mental health. And it's everything they can do just to get through the day. Um, so that um, brings us to the next one. And I saw there's a separate seminar about this. But are your students comfortable going to somebody about mental health issues? Because that is just off the charts. When I started doing college ministry 28 years ago, um, depression was the number one thing I saw. Now, by far, it's panic and anxiety, right? And it's just in the air. I, I think if you haven't read Alan Noble's book, um, You're Not Your Own, it's kind of like Carl Truman's book, but with application to the actual people you're dealing with. It's such a, such a helpful book. Number one book I could recommend right now in understanding the cultural air that our students are breathing. He uses the illustration of the Baylor Bears uh, in there, the ba not the, the, the uh, team, but the actual bears. And how they, you know, Baylor, they brought in the, like the world's greatest bear experts to build the perfect habitat, heaven on earth for bears. And they put the bears in this perfect habitat and what happens? Zucosis, they're just pacing. And what do you do with zucosis? Well, you treat them with antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines. And so his point is, our kids are living in a world that is not hospitable for humans. It, does, it doesn't work for humans. Uh, particularly the feeling that they need to create their own meaning. You know, Tim Keller used this illustration. I use it for students all the time. Like, it sucks to work a job that you're overqualified for. It's really boring, you know, like boring, like fast food or retail. But it's hell to go to work every day knowing you can't possibly do what you're asked to do. And, and that's the world they live in. Every day they're asked to provide meaning um, for themselves. And they can't possibly handle the job description. And so what, what Alan Noble's getting at is like, we can't live in this world. It's not hospitable to actual humans. And yet, 
what's marketed to us is just try this tweak or try this, you know, drug. I'm not against medicine and whatnot, but it just everybody thinks that one little tweak will make it better. Eugene Peterson said one time that most of the bondage in our life is because we refuse to embrace our finiteness. And we think if we just worked a little harder and, um, or just found a little more clever way to do this or that, that life would work. And it just isn't going to work. And, and I think our students, like, they're going to hit that brick wall in college if they haven't hit it by high school. If you see mental health issues already going on, it is definitely going to get worse when they get to college. And are they, are they the kind of people that feel like it's, it's normal and pretty regular? I mean, 50% of the students at Belmont, incoming freshmen, are medicated for mental health. That's self-reporting. Self-reporting, right? So it's probably much higher than that. Um, and is that, has that been normalized in your church culture, where they would reach out to somebody about these issues? Because, you know, the issues are much quicker, like from when they go even thinking suicidal thoughts to when they try it. The time is just so quick. So all the schools... You know, they have triage to where you can instantly get seen by somebody because you can't wait for three days before you can get an appointment. But again, I think we have a big role in helping normalize that um, for our students. Um, And I also thought about this, like one of the challenges we have with our students in college is, okay, they do have resources at the school. Most schools do. Um, Sometimes the students don't really like those resources or think they're very helpful. Um, and then I'm like, okay, can they afford to go see a counselor? Particularly if the issues connect to their parents or parents that don't believe counseling is a good idea. And then we've got the problem of money because if they go see a counselor and it gets turned into their insurance and the kids find out. So I don't know the legal ramifications, but I just sometimes I wish more churches had funds to help students that don't have the ability to go see counselors. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you can maybe can't pay for kids that are away at college, but man, I wish there was more help for that kind of thing. Um, A couple more points here. Do they know how to feed on Jesus through scripture and prayer? Um, Again, I think sometimes, you know, when I was in high school, I think I learned, you know, how to do prayer requests, like and write them down in a little book. I think my youth leader said, you know, the best way to grow in your faith is to see God answer prayers. So you write them all down and then write down when you, and that's not bad. But, and then our little Bible studies were always like fill in the blank little books, but I never learned to connect those two things together. Um, and I didn't really know how to read the Bible, you know, on my own. And a lot of students, like I, I find that they just don't even know basic, basic, basic things. And again, they've been, you know, I mean, this is part of why Rooted exists. Like, hoax and jokes, youth ministry is not preparing the students for deconstruction that they're going to get in their freshman English class, right? Like, they, they, they really are going to be, have stuff thrown at them and experiences that they're going to have that are serious. I, my approach has always been treat them like adults and don't be surprised when they act like kids. Um, but, but, but don't baby them, you know, particularly high school students. Like, they're dealing with real stuff. I think even like in, in, in children's ministry, Marva Dawn said one time, like the real problem with most children's sermons is they don't deal with the issues that children actually are dealing with that they're really afraid of, like death of a parent and you know chronic illness. All these, those are the things they're afraid of, and we never address those kinds of things. Um, 
Um, nine. Do they know the Christian life is a struggle? Uh, Bill Boyd, buddy of mine, did RUF for years at UT Knoxville. Uh, used to say this, every single freshman I meet on the campus at UT is trying to get back to a, a mountaintop experience they had in middle school camp. And, and I find that too. They, they come to college and they're wondering if they really are Christians. And I'll say, why do you wonder that? Well, I don't read my Bible like I used to. And, you know, I haven't shared the faith with anybody, you know, since I've been here. And I'll be like, well, I usually start with, well, tell me, what does it even mean to be a Christian? I never get an answer in terms of being. I always get answers in terms of doing. Um, like my, my old uh, mentor when I worked here, Scotty Smith, says, Christians are great at shooting all over themselves. <laughs> I should do this. I should do that. And they all, I, well, I ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They're like, well, it means to read my Bible and pray and do this. And they're always looking down because, of course, they know, you know, they usually say try to. You know, because they're condemned out of their own mouth. I'm like, wait, I didn't even ask that question. I asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, so, so that's, I think, still really important. But I, I, I just don't think they understand the struggle. If you've never read John Newton's letters, his three letters on um, grace in the blade, grace in the full ear of corn, he talks about three stages of growth. And he says that basically God gives extra feelings to young baby Christians because they don't have anything else. Um, so whenever we sing that song, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And I often stop and say, do you even know what a sweet frame is? Because most of you are worshiping the feelings you get in worship uh, rather than God, and you are trusting in your sweet frames, and you may have learned to not trust in your sour frames. In other words, when you don't feel like God loves you, you feel like, okay, I shouldn't trust that. That's good. You shouldn't trust in your sweet frames either. Because generally, what Luke Newton says, the stage of growing Christians, and these are a lot of covenant kids I get by the time they're in college, God is sort of removing his presence at times to draw them to a deeper level of trust. They think that something's really wrong with them. And they wonder if they can be Christians because now they don't feel like they used to feel. And, and one of my core convictions is if you misname normal, you really screw people up. And, and, and I think for a lot of our students, they don't have an understanding of the Christian life that is with full of struggle. It's one of the reasons, you know, we sing a lot of the songs we sing in RUF. Um, we sing a song like, I ask the Lord that I might grow so that my students understand God is not the divine pharmacist where you get to write the script and he'll fulfill it according to what you think you need. But he's the divine physician and sometimes his prognosis and his you know, diagnosis is different than what you think you need. And I think our students need to be, they need to be taught that before they get to college. They need to be taught that by people that, they trust, who like, aren't just trying to explain away like, you know, what they're dealing with in college and say, no, this is normal. And generally, if you're going to grow as a Christian, God is going to take you through that kind of thing. Uh, I find my students don't know anything about the doctrine of assurance, particularly if they come from evangelical backgrounds, you know, more like kind of main, like, kind of, you know, evangelical there, there where they just think that if they don't know the day and the hour that they can't be sure they're a Christian. I had a student once who told me, a youth pastor told him, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. In other words, if you're, if you're not fully assured, then you have no right to think you're a Christian. That'll mess you up. Particularly if what Newton is saying is right, that growing as a Christian usually feels like conflict. And then you know what he says about mature Christians? said, this is the way you know you're a mature Christian. You've been deceived by your heart so many times that what your heart tells you to do, you automatically do the opposite. 
And in a culture that just so much prioritizes romanticism, both in the culture and in the church, like that seems like craziness. Um, I also think it would be really helpful to talk to students about how to know God's will. Um, because they, they are just absolutely clueless. And they, they just use this language of, I just need to kind of be right in the center of God's will. And they're obsessed with trying to figure out if it's their will or God's will. Like the heart's deceitful above all things. Like how, how are you going to figure that out? Right? Um, I've got an episode on my podcast on knowing God's will if you want. I love um, Bruce Walkie's little book on that, if you don't know that, that book, where he basically compares most Christian teaching on knowing God's will to divination. You know, in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable book. Um, la- last thing, um, if worship is formative, have we formed them well? Um, of course, you know, I was going to say this, you know, we need songs that are more honest about struggle and more explicit about the gospel. I remember um, those Barna people years ago doing a seminar on like what millennials found so offensive about the church. And they had this guy leading worship like before the seminar, and I was like, did you not pick up like everything you said that students hate was in the songs and the manner of the guy that just led worship? Like you don't even, I tried to talk to them afterwards, and they just didn't connect the dots. Um, I, I just think you got to connect the dots because worship is shaping and reflecting the DNA of your church and your group. Um, I'll tell you this one last story. I had a, a student who her dad was a youth pastor, uh, in the Northeast, you know, she was the star of the youth group. She wasn't just like a student ministry leader at Belmont. She was actually leading all the other student leaders. So they have like this program where the university ministry department recruits students to be like volunteer chaplains and they assign, you know, one of them to each floor of every freshman dorm. She was the one mentoring all those people, but she was also burning herself and, um, you know, living with deep shame and not able to tell anybody about it. First thing she came to in an RUF kind of capacity was she came to one of our conferences and heard 500 students singing that song, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And she told me like, it looked like they actually believed it. And she felt like, finally, maybe I found a group where I can tell people what was really going on. Um, So I really think it's important that we sing songs that reflect the struggle because otherwise the students feel like there's something wrong with them. And I talk to students all the time who've had this unbelievably um, alienating experience of being in the midst of a room with a thousand people with their eyes closed and their hands raised, and they open their eyes and they look around, and I'm like, I'm not feeling it. Like, what's wrong with me? And so I, I think that's, that's really important. To register for Rooted 2024, visit rootedministry.com conference. Parenting has never been easy, and in a sea of information, it's hard to find the gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources you can trust. Whether you're a pastor serving in family ministry or a parent in the thick of raising kids, Rooted Reservoir Family Discipleship was created to equip you to disciple the teenagers in your life. We're excited to add three new courses this September. The first one, Pornography and Parenting. The second, on the spiritual and psychological development of children. And the third, on Navigating Technology, that talks about girls and social media and boys and video games. Join us today by visiting the Curriculum section on our website, rootedministry.com.